You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In late December of 2013, Herb Wong's wife, Marilyn, asked me if I could help Herb with his memory. Unable to recall any prior mention by Marilyn of my mnemonic skills, I was left to my own devices until I heard from Herb who clarified not memory, Paul, memories, memories which were to become jazz on my mind. These were the memories Dr. Herb Wong had made over seven decades as a reigning force in jazz. 30-year DJ on San Francisco's K-Jazz radio station, author of more than 400 album liner notes during the heyday of jazz, explorer of creativity in one-on-one conversations with jazz legends and legends-to-be, founder and producer with Palo Alto Records and Blackhawk Records, founder and producer of Palo Alto and Stanford Jazz Concerts and Festivals, co-founder and artistic director of the Palo Alto Jazz Alliance, scientist and educator, innovator and pioneer in the field of jazz education, member of the Jazz Educators Hall of Fame, president of the International Association for Jazz Education. Herb Wong and I had met through our mutual work with the Monterey Jazz Festival. Herb covered the event as a journalist for 56 years, and for 30 of those years, I was the festival's marketing and public relations director. With our common connections in jazz and path-crossing careers, with our shared respect for words and joint sense of humor, with our mutual love of family considering each other as such, Herb and I developed a personal relationship over the years, a relationship that extended over and above our professional association. So it was only natural for Marilyn to have approached me with her request to help Herb write this book. Complicating our mission of memorializing Herb's memories was the understanding, which we all shared at the outset, that Herb had terminal cancer with less than a year to live. For our first meeting on the book project, I sat down with Herb and Marilyn in the living room of their longtime home, a classic Eichler, located on a leafy leafy lane in Menlo Park, California. I came to the table with an agenda in hand, mapping out the steps we needed to take in order to complete the book over the next 12 months. On my return home in Monterey, I received a frantic phone call from Marilyn, letting me know that the latest prognosis had given Herb less than four months to live, not the year I had planned out in my agenda, and that Herb was unaware of this depressing new development. In response, I accelerated the schedule of my meetings with Herb while maintaining the facade of our 12-month to-do list. I had hoped that the year I had projected for the project's completion might help prolong Herb's positive outlook on life, if not Herb's life itself. Herb's job was to select the liner notes, articles, and conversation he wanted to include in our book. My job was to interview Herb and record his accounts of the artists, in addition to his insights on jazz, then weave it all together into the pages of Jazz on My Mind. Instrument by instrument, artist by artist, story by story, we worked our way through Herb's selections and Herb's recollections. I was enlightened by his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz, educated by his thesaurus-like language and way with words, fascinated by his tales from behind the scenes, and always aware that, at any moment, Herb might die. The highlight of those meetings occurred for me when, during our interviews, Herb would pause, close his eyes, and then seem to disappear for a moment without saying a word, a rarity for Herb Wong. 
Concerned at first, I soon sensed that at those unforgettable times, Herb was not merely recalling memories, he was reliving moments from a lifetime of jazz on his mind. Herb and I were able to complete our conversations a week before Herb completed his life, Easter Sunday, April 20, 2014. As Dr. Herb Wong was wont to say in closing, and as I am privileged to paraphrase here, dig you later, Herb, dig you later. Dr. Herb Wong was a part of the worlds of jazz, science, and education for over 70 years. He was past president of the International Association for Jazz Education, and in 1993 was inducted into the International Association for Jazz Education Hall of Fame. He was also a published educator with dozens of titles under his name. Herb Wong's final book, written with co-author Paul Simeon Fingerout, was Jazz on My Mind, Liner Notes, Anecdotes, and Conversations from the 1940s to the 2000s. Dr. Herbert H. Wong passed away on April 20th, 2014. Paul Fingerout is a veteran marketing and advertising professional with a 40-year international ad agency career. He's an on-air host for our National Public Radio's Monterey affiliate, KAZU, and he is the co-author of Jazz on My Mind. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Paul, Herb writes in this book, in, in his introduction, Jazz on My Mind is not a history of jazz, nor is it a jazz encyclopedia, although components of both are included in this record. <clears throat> and the fact that he calls it a record, and the way the book is put together, I would like to suggest that this is, in fact, an encyclopedia and a history, but it's an encyclopedia and history of jazz done in the style of jazz, in the style of the music itself, with lots of improvisation, lots of bringing in stuff from all sorts of other genres, putting together a lot of cut and paste. It's really the jazzy history of jazz. Very good point. And uh, I think it's typical of Herb Wong. That's the way he (laughs) was. And he, I think, uh, begins uh, by setting, I think, a structure uh, to the book. Uh, He and I discussed at the outset that we didn't see this being broken down into chapters. It didn't seem right for a jazz book. So we ended up breaking this down by instruments to give it a structure that someone can get a handle on. You know, jazz kind of can fly all over the place, but you need (laughs) some tether. You need something holding you down so you can have a starting point. And the structure that we came up was to break the book up into instruments. And uh, I called it, uh, when I was asked by McFarland, the publisher, uh, for a table of contents, I called it Tracks, keeping with the jazz theme. Uh, And they fortunately kept that in the book. And I was happy to see that. So Herb and I had a structure in which uh, I asked Herb to start with the big bands and give me his impressions of what the big bands were all about in terms of jazz, uh, and then give me a priority list of the instruments that make up the big bands, and then that became the structure under which, the umbrella under which we started putting the book together. But like jazz, and like you uh, uh, astutely observed, this flies all over the place because that's what jazz is, is all about as well. Once you have that structure, it's the foundation uh, to leap off into improvisation. And I think you find that in this book. Although, I would say that, that from my standpoint, I try to take 
all of the information that Herb gave me, and believe me, uh, there is twice as much information that is, uh, was given to me that we actually ended up with, and I had to cut 50% of this out before the manuscript went out. So I had a lot of information that I think uh, was structured in the end in a readable, page-turning sort of way. So the fact that there was a foundation gives it that structure that I think the book needs for someone to follow along, but the stories that Herb tells that can be comic, can be tragic, can be poignant, uh, kind of have that rhythm where, you know, you're laughing one moment and then you're almost crying over Billie Holiday and then you're, you're laughing about a Buddy Rich story. Uh, so there is, there is that, that flavor of almost a jazz tune that, that the book kind of uh, uh, developed uh, almost on its own in, in the way Herb's writings kind of had that uh, rhythm and off, off on a tangent all of a sudden. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I notice is that Herb met a lot of people really at a time when either he was very young or they were very young. And yes. It's kind of interesting, a yes. contrast in that. Good point. I'd like you to talk about the first time you met Herb and, and under what circumstances. Uh, I, I want to talk about that, but you remind me of something, and, and I, I need to share some stories before I forget them. So let okay. me just go back to that idea that you shared about Herb meeting people when he was young and they were young. This is incredible to me that he started out um, at the age of 10. And he was, first of all, a classic, he was trained in classical piano. He and mm-hmm. his brother, Elwood, whose nickname was Woody, wouldn't it be Woody, of, of course, course. Um, because Herb ended up almost managing Woody Herman's band, so there's a Woody in the family. But at the age of 10, there's a charming story in the book in the introduction about a box that arrived on the doorstep, and it was full of jazz LPs, or not LPs, 78s in those days, 78 RPM, as you know, of mm-hmm. course. Um And he discovered these jazz albums and he turned to his little brother and he said to his little brother, this is, this is the real music. This is my music. And by the age of 14, he was writing jazz reviews of albums for his church newsletter. And from the age of 14, uh, until K jazz started on the air, which is 1959, he, Herb, was at the tender age of teenage years, with his parents' permission, taking the train from Stockton, California, up to the Bay Area and hanging around outside jazz clubs, listening to the music, because he couldn't get in, he was underage, (laughs) and in that way, he met the music personally on a a street level, on a one-on-one level, and he met the artists they, they saw him everywhere. And they, who is this kid? And they started to uh, talk to him. And this is how he got to know all of these artists. And as, as he said, and he knew them in, in the beginning, in, in the, the rise, in the pinnacle, and sometimes in the end of their careers. So he knew these artists intimately, as you point out, from a very, very early age. And he had the ability to discover talent and so nurture talent. Taylor yeah. Igsty, uh, Tierney Sutton, um, uh, other artists around this area, as a matter of fact, around the Menlo Park area that he lived, uh, he discovered and nurtured their talents uh, and, 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 and saw them to the big time. So 
back to your original question, um, I met Herb through my work with the Monterey Jazz Festival. Uh, Herb, uh, who uh, attended the first Monterey Jazz Festival in 1958, attended every festival for 54 consecutive years until he couldn't attend anymore. And he was either attending as a journalist uh, or as a producer. He was a producer for Blackhawk Records. He was a, a founder and producer of Palo Alto Records, um, or as a, uh, a member of the International Association for Jazz Education. Uh, he attended every one of those festivals. And in my capacity as marketing and public relations director, I met him the first year I was at the festival. We became instantly close. Um, and I think when I was trying to describe our relationship in the book, in fact, in the preface, uh, just as I was writing that portion of the book, Marilyn, his wife, called me and just out of the blue said, Herb thought of you as a brother. And so I was able to complete that sentence as I was writing it. And that's how we grew together. And even though, and I'm sure you have these experiences yourself with friends, even though we wouldn't see each other for a year, it was like we saw each other yesterday and picked up on our conversation. And our conversation usually revolved around family because Herb was very, very interested in my family and, and always made sure he knew what was going on. So that's how I met him and worked with him over all those years. One of the things that strikes me about this immediately was the idea of using liner notes to tell the story of jazz because liner notes are to a certain extent now a thing of the past maybe not maybe you might find them now and again but back then they were a really powerful form of literature and herb was such a great writer yes. at that and it's yes. such a it's such a strange little place yeah, a, a little mark it's tied to a kind of technology the size of the record yes. itself yes how many words he could write yes talk about uh his writing experiences and going through these fabulous stories of jazz that you find on in the liner notes i, I and i appreciate your comment on liner notes from an historical perspective because uh, you know, for, for folks nowadays, uh, you know, you might have to explain what liner notes were, but for, for, for you and, and for me, certainly, our family, we, were, we joined the Columbia Record Club, and yeah. we, we got a record a month, and we had a record player as a part of the deal, and we read those liner notes. We loved reading those liner notes. The liner notes were a preview of what you were going to hear, and in, in good cases, when they were, they were well done, they, give, they gave you a flavor of the era, I think, mm -hmm. and, and that's what her did in writing the liner notes you just you you, you 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 were not simply reading about the album that was in your hands or the cd that was in your hands uh, you were reading about how the music came about how the music was important why the music was important about the artists about the era in which this all took place um i think there was a, a stan kenton liner notes uh, perhaps it was stan kenton where somebody walked up and said that, that they they were experiencing a happening <laughs> and you don't hear that very often nowadays but herb captured that and captured the spirit of of uh, and the essence of what was going on in the world of uh, and of jazz and the world at large while he was writing these liner notes and what a writer he was. Um, it was it, as any writer or author will tell you, I'm sure that when you're doing the research and you're and you're you're reading through things, you're not absorbing as much as you're planning and, and thinking, how am I going to use this? So when I was doing my research. 
in 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 the these eight stages that that the book took, the processes that that it went through, I really didn't get to read this writing until the final stages when I was really reading it, proofreading it, and then reading it just to to kind of enjoy it and pick out excerpts that I might share, for instance, in an interview. Mm-hmm. So I got to read this. He he was uh, a a. A writer who, and, and, and there, there's kind of a, a fun side to this, uh, but he, he, if, if a word would do, Herb would find a sentence. <laughs> if uh, a sentence would do, Herb would write a paragraph, and if a paragraph would, write a, uh, would do, Herb would write a page. But every word on that page was so perfectly selected, written, put next to another word in, in context, uh, that the, 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 the words grabbed a hold of you emotionally. And I find myself going up and down and up and down as I'm reading his writing. The other thing I find as I'm reading his writing is I reach for the dictionary. Mm. I don't think I've ever reached for the dictionary as much as I have with Herb Wong's writing. Uh, and, and in a good way, because I was, uh, uh, I was uh, educated by this thesaurus-like knowledge he had of words, and he used these words... Sometimes I found that he made up the words, so <laughs> I, was, I was even more pleased. But he, he was a writer whom I think could get to the essence uh, of, of the topic and then expand in a way that uh, um, didn't take you away necessarily, not off on a tangent, but took you down a parallel track to teach you a little more about what you're reading about here. Yeah, he would give you some parallax, and two, for all his erudition, all his knowledge, all his historical content, his liner notes and all his writing, it's fun. Yes. I mean, he you could tell he was... <coughs> You could tell that he was digging it. Yes. Every single moment of what he was doing. Yes. And he was right there, and he had the ability to bring you right there and rev you up the reader's enthusiasm for what they were about to hear. Yes, good point. Uh, absolutely. He, he, he had a knack for that uh, and, and carried it through in all of his writings. And I, I, I think aside from the liner notes, which uh, I think make up the brunt of the book, the, mm-hmm. the conversations the con- uh, are gems. The interviews, too. As, absolutely. And, and Herb, by the way, he said to me once in, in, in getting uh, all of our uh, 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 eggs in this, in this basket to put this book together, he said, Paul, I've thought about this. They're not interviews. They're conversations. Mm. And from then on, I have called these conversations, and they are because when you read the book and when you read the conversations, you'll realize it's not Herb asking a question and then sitting back and letting the artist answer. It is a conversation, and in the conversations, usually centered around creativity. If there's any thread going through this book, it's what is creativity? What has it done for this artist? How did it influence you? Uh, and it's fascinating, believe me, to read the artist's answers. Talk about stories I mean, and talk about uh, uh, depth uh, of, of some of the uh, comments from some of these artists. And I, I, you know, I, we, we started talking about knowledge of jazz versus knowledge of, of marketing. I'm the marketing guy. Herb's the jazz guy. I didn't know some of these artists. And reading some of these comments uh, uh, just opened my eyes to how important these conversations are because you learn from the artist's heart what it is that made them uh, jazz artists and what creativity, uh, what part creativity placed, uh, 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 played in, 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 in their development as a jazz artist. You know, you were, as you were talking about creativity, there's been a lot of work done now by neuroscientists about creativity. Mm-hmm. And I've been kind of reading some of this stuff. And it was interesting to see 
these artists back in the 60s, 70s, 80s talking about creativity through the new lens of what we now understand more about how the mm -hmm. mind works mm -hmm. and to see how uh, when somebody who is really creative and really smart and articulate, even on a musical instrument, talks about creativity, they can bring up the, you know, explain the ideas of creativity in a way that's really illuminating. And also, if anybody else who's ever interested in creativity, I and mean, creativity should, is a, should be a part of, I think, all of our lives, yes. this, these books, conversations are really inspiring. I mean, they just make you want to get out and do something. Yes, I, I agree. And, and uh, for uh, Herb to have conducted the conversations in the way he did is such an admirable trait uh, for, for, again, for him not simply asking a question, sitting back, and, and, and then going on to the next question. He engaged the artists, mm -hmm. and he engaged them with a focus on, and, on, on really bringing out to them where is this creative bud where 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 is where is the essence of all this and in practical terms it was how did your mother and father uh treat your jazz uh inclinations how did they enhance your creativity so he kind of followed this trail uh and um uh did it in a way that when you read the conversations you feel you're sitting there in the room um, and it's a natural flow of a chat and you're privileged to be a fly on the wall listening to this chat. So it, 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 he also brought two. Um, he had so much knowledge within him. When he talked to somebody, he could bring out and refer to things and approach the subject in a manner that was very expansive. So he could at, bring up conversational points that would allow that would inspire the artist to talk in a manner that was even more expressive, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think so. There, there has to be a key to open a door with the artist that says, yes, I know what I'm talking about. I am knowledgeable. <laughs> uh, and honestly, Herb had an encyclopedic knowledge of mm -hmm. jazz, uh, just unbelievable. It was... It, it stunned me. You know, every every day that I talked to him, every every time that we we started talking about the book, and 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 I was asking him questions, uh, he would come up with uh, out of left field. You know, whatever you know the date was and the place was that this <laughs> happened, and I'm sitting there. I can't even remember what I did yesterday. How do you do this? So, uh, he he had an encyclopedic knowledge of the music. But I think he also, and he, and he did use words that you had to look up, mm -hmm. but he also made it very clear in very plain, simple English what this was all about. And I think that the book, in the end, looking at it, uh, is, is almost a primer of, you know, of, of if, somebody, if somebody's a jazz fan and they want to cut through all the talk that you hear about jazz. I mean, it's like, you know, the golf swing is analyzed or wine <laughs> is analyzed and jazz is analyzed. Here is a very simple look that has a foundation of depth, a foundation of knowledge, but it's like a ride. It's like getting on a, a ride and enjoying all the twists and turns uh, that happen uh, and, and amongst the personalities that, that Herb dealt with, worked with, knew intimately. Two, um, he was not just a, a study or a jazz educational uh, uh, pro. I mean, he spread the word of jazz, but he's also a scientist. Yes. And, and you can see that in some of his, in the discussions yes. in the book. There's one point where he's talking about uh, a 
Birdland. <clears throat> oh, I, it's very funny that you say that because it was one of the things that I happened to call because when I was when I was reading the book, proofing the book, mm-hmm. and I came across this paragraph and 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 and, and let's backtrack a little bit sure. because Herb had two lives and most people knew Herb because he was a jazz guy, uh-huh. but his his initial training um, was in science and he was a scientist with a, a PhD in zoology from Cal, uh, a specializing in ornithology. He was a well-respected, highly regarded birder, and uh, science education was his uh, beginning forte when he started. Mm-hmm. He was hired by Berkeley Unified School District by Washington Elementary School to teach science. And he was teaching science in a way that we now know works, but in those days it was new, hands-on, experiments mm-hmm. in class. He developed an environmental garden back in the 70s, I think it was, before anybody thought of this, that was having kids in the schools grow their own vegetables, learning about uh, nature, learning about mulching, composting. And this is in the 1970s, long, long ahead of, of anything. I'll tell you a, a quick story. Science was half of his life, and I'll tell you the way I learned that. Mm-hmm. I walked into his house for the first uh, meeting on the book. Marilyn, his wife, and Herb greeted me and uh, showed me uh, his working area. I looked into this former two-car garage and uh, immediately labeled it the bunker (laughs) because you couldn't see anything. If you looked right, and this is from the house, you looked right, there were tens of thousands of jazz LPs and CDs. And if you looked left, there were tens of thousands of scientific journals, magazines, and books. So he had these two lives, and these, these, were, these were the two lives, but jazz took over. Jazz took over, and jazz education really took over. So I think, you know, he, he was, uh, uh, I, I would say the words creator, innovator, pioneer. I think if, if, if there was a father of jazz education, it was Herb Wong. He was certainly in the parentage and of science education. Uh, and that was the devotion of, uh, of his life. He, 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 he was devoted to jazz education. You talked about the eight stages of this book. That's a really interesting concept. I, what, what are the eight stages? Did you know there were going to be eight stages no, when you no, started? No, I didn't know there were eight <laughs> stages until I thought you might ask me the question. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking uh, in, in anticipation of our chat uh, about, you know, an author, a writer, or people who are reading or listening uh, to your work might want to know about how this came about. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, Merrill and his wife asked me to help him with his memory. Um, uh, and, I, and I identified eight stages as I thought about how did this really come about. It started uh, with a planning stage. Uh, I assume the role of project manager. Mm. Um, anytime you have a project like this where there are multiple resources, there are multiple um, items of material, um, there are people who had to do things, uh, you need to have a, a, a spreadsheet, a timeline, and that was my first job, was planning out, as it turned out, a 12-month timeline, which I then adjusted knowing Herb wasn't going to be with us for 12 months, but didn't tell him. Um, so I had to plan out who needed to do what to get all the pieces together in order to meet the deadline of getting this book to the publisher on time. So that was the first stage. Second stage was research. Um, I 
gave Herb marching orders for him to go back into the bunker and pick out the best of those 400-plus liner notes, uh, conversations, articles, uh, to be in the book or considered for publication in the book. Um, and uh, he had his criteria. He mm-hmm. had very strict criteria for this. Did uh, you have to negotiate those with him? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. No, his criteria were very simple. He wanted to focus on artists with whom the listener might be familiar um, and also introduce new artists uh, to the listener with whom that listener might not be familiar. And the criteria for those artists was, was the creativity that they put into their work. He only wanted to deal with artists who were in his terms, creative artists who were different, who did things differently. And he wanted to show the reader of the book different ways to listen to the music of artists they know and different artists to listen to. So that was his criteria going into this. My research was to develop the questions that I knew I needed to ask him that would get us from point A to point Z and get the book to the, to, to the, to the publisher. Um, and those really were to get his overall comments on jazz, to get his overall comments uh, as an introduction to each of these tracks, each of these instruments. What was the, uh, uh, what was the trumpet all about? Mm-hmm. Where did it fit into the grand scheme of jazz? Uh, and then to get his stories on all the artists. So that was my research part of this. That was where I had to sit down with him, not had to, got to sit down with him uh, and talk to him and record uh, his responses. So, so you recorded the interviews and I then you had to those go interviews. back and transcribe and edit those. Well, um, no, uh, I, I actually uh, left them raw. Um, what I did was I listened to them and I indexed them in a, in a kind of a way that let me know if I needed a comment on Kenny Burrell, it was on this recording and it was this far into this recording. Oh, okay. So the research part being completed, the third stage was writing. Mm-hmm. Nothing pleased me more than writing this book. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a person who gets out of bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. That sounds I, very I familiar. Write, uh, and, 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 and I got in the habit when I, when I worked for the Jazz Festival and I was calling the East Coast, and I found if I called the East Coast at 5 o'clock in the morning, they knew it was coming from Monterey, they'd answer the phone more, you know, uh, more likely. So, um, But in this case, this was like one of those lazy boy chairs that, you know, pounce you up because you can't get up anymore. I bounced out of bed and got to the computer computer. And I loved writing this book because I got to listen to Herb, listen to his stories. I got to read his, his liner notes. I got to listen to the conversations. Uh, I got to really enjoy uh, Herb Wong and, and putting all of this into a readable uh, 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 copy that, you know, that would really that'd be enjoyable for people, uh, people to read. So on a parallel track with that stage three of writing was stage four, which was mechanical. And you don't have liner notes jump off of the album and onto the page of the book. <laughs> so the process, really? yeah, the process was, fortunately, I had a couple of volunteers who were helping me. Um, uh, Ramona Murray did a number of scans. So you had to scan the liner notes from either the CD insert or the, the album. And in the end, for the, the, for the remainder of the scans, I bought myself a big window scanner so that I could just do an album, plop it down on there as opposed to turning it and trying to do it, you know, four different ways to get all the copy. And once that is done for the albums and for the articles, 
because I had articles, original articles that I had to have scanned or scan, I had a, a, pro, a program, a software program, that converted the PDF that you get out of a scan into a Word document. Nice. Nice. <laughs> good news, bad news. Yeah. The, the good news is that, that here's this magic that happens before my eyes. I hit a button on my computer, and boom, there's my Word document. Now I can edit. Now I can proof. The bad news is that the software program was not a jazz fan. So I had innumerable times of having to correct a trumpeter playing his porn <laughs> into a trumpeter playing his horn. Um, and for all the names, and if you look at the index, and we'll get to that in a moment, for all the names of all the artists, of all the tunes, of all, all the albums, I had to go back and make multiple corrections on uh, the scans. So that was a mechanical part that really was a lengthy process. And the conversations were uh, another lengthy process because they were long conversations. Herb, uh, and this is fascinating to me, an insight again, Herb would meet with these artists in the green room at Yoshi's, you know, before they go on or after they were on. Uh, they'd, he'd meet in their hotel rooms and he'd sit there with a cassette tape recorder and record these conversations. So those also had to make it to the printed page and that meant they had to be transcribed. Mm. I had help from Barbara Hickey, another volunteer, uh, who helped by transcribing a couple of Dave Brubeck conversations. Uh, I transcribed a number of other conversations. And whereas on the liner notes in the articles, I had to do some minor editing, check some names and whatnot uh, to make sure that we were correct in all of these names, conversations had to be edited to take out some extraneous, nice weather we're having, uh, comments, um, never any, any real content. Uh, I left all the content in, but I had to edit them uh, a little more than I had to edit anything else. So mechanical stage uh, was translating all the conversations, all the articles, not liner notes, to the printed page. Right. And that was while I was doing the writing. And I wrote the book from, from the get-go, starting at the introduction, uh, the preface, and then the introduction. And I just went through the book, and I would listen to what Herb had to say about the big bands. And then I would not interpret it as much as clean it up. You know, he, 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 he would go off on tangents, and, he, you know, he'd drift a little bit. Um, he was in his 80s at the time, so I, I you know, wasn't surprised. So um, he, um, uh, uh, um, he, he would give me the gist of the information, and I would put that into the introduction. And then I'd hear what he had to say about the top artist that he had for that in instrument, or the top big band, which turned out to be Duke Ellington Orchestra. And then I would write, uh, interpret kind of, and, and rephrase some of his words to make sense of the stories that he told. And then I would get the liner notes and polish those up and put them in the book. And so um, that... Uh, that was a large portion of uh, the mechanical stage and the writing stage. And at the end of the writing stage, um, I, I never looked at word count. I always told myself, I must put everything down on paper. I've got everything from Herb. I had 120 artists that he gave me. Uh, and I thought, I've got to put it all down on paper before I can figure out who's in, who's not. Uh, you know, if I, I, don't, I need to know how many, uh, how many drummers do I have here? Do I have too many drummers? Or do I not have enough vocalists? Uh, where, do I, where do I mix and match these? So I ended up with 220,000 words and took a look at the contract, which called for 110,000 words, and then began the 
fifth stage, I guess it is, of calling the artists. Mm. That was a project. That sounds hard and really heart-rending. horribly hard <laughs> and hard. How can I not have XYZ in? Well, the determination was made initially by Herb, who had a priority list of artists he wanted to make sure were absolutely in the book, and he had some people who should be, and some people, that's eh, okay if they're not in the book. So that helped, and then I had to juggle, and that dovetailed into the next stage, which was permissions. Mm. Yeah, you roll your eyes, you're, <laughs> rightly so, rightly Boy. so. Um, so the culling of the artists was dovetailing with who was I getting permission to use? Mm. And uh, the good news was 99% of the people that I contacted gave me permission, no question asked. I was delighted when somebody said, oh, Herb Wong, of course. Mm. Um, I had one label refuse and they had three or four artists that I really wanted in the book, but they just didn't talk to me. I don't know why. Interesting. I had one artist who's a state, very well-known artist, uh, Hall of Famer, um, who's a state, he's no longer with us, um, his estate, and I guess it was his daughter, asked for $500 for use of a conversation in the book. Um, and, and I consulted with Marilyn, who, uh, Marilyn Wong, uh, Herb's widow, who, who, who was my, uh, kind of my, my, my touch point here to, to make sure things were okay. Um, we decided to pass on that. We didn't think it was right. And also we had another conversation with the same artist that we could use for free. So mm. that was a stumbling uh, block. But in the end, um, it was a question of um, who would give permission, who would not, um, who really was on the priority list, who was not. And so after a great deal of effort, I, I managed to get permission for the liner notes. This came from, and you'll appreciate this, this came from record labels. Oh my God. You tell me if any record labels from the 50s or the 60s, and, and by the way, Herb wrote in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So these record labels from the 40s, 50s, you know, are no longer around, but who owns them? Mm. I've got to get permission to use this. It's detective work just to find and out it was where they were. A good, good call. It was a <laughs> treasure hunt. It was, mm. I just got up in the morning and I said, okay, I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to do this section today. Um, and it was a treasure hunt finding uh, the permissions, but I got them all done. Uh, it was liner notes. It was the al album covers we used. There are photographs in the book. They all had to have a permission. Otherwise, uh, no, no production would, would begin. So permissions. Um, and then once I got the permissions uh, and, and called the artists, everything went off uh, and there, to the publisher. And there was a, a little bit of back and forth. Um, a little bit of me writing, rewriting the preface, or the epilogue as the preface. preface. Uh, but that was minor changes and uh, went back uh, to uh, McFarland, the publisher. Um, and they sent me, I believe it was early March, a PDF mm -hmm. of my manuscript now translated into a preprint PDF uh, uh, in, 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 for publication that now <laughs> entered the stage of proofreading and indexing. They gave me the two tasks together, which was smart, to proofread and index. Right. Proofreading, uh, I published uh, a work, acted as publisher of, of a 72-page program every year for the Monterey Jazz Festival. So I knew how to project manage that, and I knew how to proofread things like that. I proofread everything, and I know how to do that. I've never indexed a book. This is my first book. <laughs> 
and a book of such <laughs> substance. And, right. And I don't know if you looked at the index, but it's, it's 15 pages long. Substantial. 15 pages, a pretty darn small print. Three That's columns, I think eight-point or six-point type. And I, you know, and I was determined when I started doing the indexing that her being a writer of substance deserved to have everything in here and the reader deserved to have everything in the index because McFarland is a, a publisher of scholarly books their niche market for 30 years has been libraries and educational institutions. That's their, their marketing uh, window. And I thought, uh, and they told me, and there's eight pages of notes that they gave me to do indexing, that a scholarly reader will look at the index first. Mm. They're going to look at that index. And I think anybody who looks at the index of this book is going to realize that the index is probably worth the price of the book. There's so much in the index. Uh, every song, every album, every composer, arranger, player, everybody, every concept, everything you could possibly want to know is in, is in the index of the book. So that was a, a, a very intense, focused um, part of the process. That was a very intense, focused stage. I have a bright, bright white light on the page, sitting in front of me, printed out, and I went back and forth, indexing and proofing at the same time. And at the same time, I gave myself the task of selecting any excerpts that I might want to use in an interview like this or, or in writing in the future. So that was the next to last stage. The, the book appeared all of a sudden. <laughs> I was told, expected in July, April 18th, there it was, uh, published. And so it appeared... And that really started, and, and, and actually I was already in this stage, but the marketing stage, mm. which is what I'm now in. Um, as I said, McFarland deals with libraries and educational institutions. I've got to deal with the rest of the world. And starting with my focus, obviously, on the jazz world, I want everyone who has anything to do with jazz in this world to know of the existence of this book. I would I can see why they would want to. And they, mean, I'm sure they would want book. to. It's... Yeah. And and thank you. And I I also think at the, that the world at large, those folks out there who wonder about jazz, who might be wannabe jazz fans, uh, I also want to market it to those people because I could not think of a better introduction to the world of jazz than the words of Herb Wong and the music that he selected for this book. Now, speaking of the music, I'm wondering, is there some way that you've thought about, um, <coughs> is there some way that you've thought about uh, creating some kind of CD or a compilation that could accompany the book? Thought about it, yes. <laughs> uh, but project one was to get the book done. Mm. Um, I will say that it's in the back of my mind that w this would just be such a wonderful box set of, of, of some of the tunes that are uh, Herb Reviews. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and, and the book. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that might be a, a marketing aim that, you know, that I'll pursue. But right now the book is, is on my plate and the marketing of the book is on my plate. Uh, and and folks, other folks have said podcasts. Other folks, you know, have said, you know, uh, you know, readings and, and you know, my my. My ultimate is to do uh, a reading accompanied by student musicians who would play some of these tunes that I'm reading excerpts from the book about. That sounds like fun, yeah. I, and you're in a good place to do that. Well, I have. I, I must say that I, I'm, I'm uh, a point of pride that in, in doing my research, in talking to the people that I'd met over my 30 years with the Monterey Jazz Festival, that the doors were, were open wide because I... I, I I believe I handled myself very professionally and, and, and dealt in a very 
positive way with all the people that I dealt with over the years. And, and that helped when I went back to them to get permission to use something, uh, or I'm sure will help in the future as well. About the book, one of the things that interested me, and when you talked about the eight stages, I was thinking of them as kind of layers, and the book is very layered. I, and uh, how did you uh, decide the order of the instruments, and was that a negotiation with you and Herb? No, my my I, I doff my cap to Herb Wong every time. <laughs> no, I, um, I go back to the idea that this is kind of a jazzy read, and it is. It it, it kind of you know it, it has a it has a, uh, a a number of elements that you know will surprise you when you turn the page. It'll take you to different places. It's got that swing. It does, <laughs> but it thank you. And it, it it needed the structure though, mm-hmm. and that was the part of the project management. Is how how are we going to put all this down on paper? And decided early on that it was Herb who needed to tell me, in, in order, uh, what are the instruments that make up the, the jazz world and the big bands, which is where we started with a natural kind of start with the big bands, um, and then going through the instruments in order of Herb's priority. Mm-hmm. And I also dovetailed into asking Herb which artist comes to mind in this instrument uh, with this instrument, so that I started each of the uh, artist parts of the book with Herb's priority artist, his top artist. Sometimes it was two, sometimes it was one, but it, it was it's, it's Herb's it's Herb's content. You know, one of the things that interested me was that because Herb was an educator, this book is like a natural outgrowth of all his work, and in some ways, maybe the peak of all of his work, in that it captures, I think, quite well the entirety of a genre that really resists being captured. Uh, so talk about how this is a work as an outgrowth of his work as an educator and his work as a jazz educator. I think you make some very astute and very important observations that, the, that the, I think Herb was about education from the very start of his career. Remember, he didn't take his science degree and go into the lab. He went into the real lab, the schoolroom, and, and really uh, created a, a learning experience that is life, that, that is real, that, you know, kids literally walked into his, they wanted to walk into his classroom because it was like a Disneyland of science, you know, you hands-on, you know, you, you got to do experiments, you got to do things that no other class really lets you do, and I think that was the way that he lived his life professionally in, well, in from, teaching. From four, At the age of 14, he's out there writing yeah. reviews of jazz, and I think as a reviewer, when you're writing a review, part of the, your... Uh, mission as a reviewer is to educate your reader why is this worth your time yes and that had been a that's a core part of his being yeah and i'd only add to that i think that uh, it's the good reviewers it's the good uh, (laughs) uh, people who, who who actually look at the idea that this can be more than just my opinion of this music. This mm-hmm. can be illuminating. This can uh, be stimulating. Sure. This can teach people as well as inform them about what album they might be listening to. Now, uh, I love the feel of this book. It's orchestrated. Mm-hmm. like, uh, And it's appropriate that you start off with uh, the big bands of jazz because they are... At um, orchestras. They call themselves orchestras. Yes, jazz and I think, orchestras, yes. I think that's a really interesting notion that is somewhat lost these days, but I, it's wonderful to see it back and to see it 
the books start out referring to the musical aspect, and yet the book itself becomes a print literary extension of the musical aspects that it examines. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, it it is true. It and and it 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 from the get go was never going to be anything but a journey. Mm. The book needed to have, and this is my, this is the way I write anything. It needed to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it needed to bring that end back to the beginning. And that's kind of the way I felt this needed to be approached. The good news was that Herb was right on the same page with me for for seven decades. He was mm-hmm. doing that kind of work. Uh, that would have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that end would bring you back to the beginning, and you'd feel satisfied uh, and, and, and gratified and fulfilled. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you point that out because it, it was orchestrated in that way. It was, it was meant to, to, to have, have that solid foundation of that structure, but to, once you hear some of Herb's stories, you, you knew that it, it was going to have those highs and those lows and, 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 and that page-turning capability, which I really like. And, and the folks who have read the book, uh, I think if there's any one common comment, it, it is how readable the book is and how much of a page-turner and a compelling read it is. Absolutely. I think that one of the things you do really well is by breaking it down into so many parts that are so easily grokkable. Guitar. We all know what the guitar is, but we don't know what it is in these terms. To hear about Kenny Burrell Mm -hmm. calling up Herb and going back and forth negotiating and ending up playing at Herb's wedding, it it just brings in the whole real world, and it's so sweet. This book has, there's a lot of, I think, sweet, fond, beautiful memories in this book there are and and and, and american yes um the uh the kenny burrell story uh, you know is one of those charming stories that herb has about his life because he interacted with all these artists uh, all these artists interacted with him and and kenny uh, uh didn't know herb was getting married and changed his schedule and then asked if he could play uh, at herb's wedding and herb uh, said of course and Kenny asked for some su- suggestions for some tunes and Herb gave him some ballads and Kenny called back apparently later and said Herb I can't remember how the wedding march goes and Herb <laughs> had to go da 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 <laughs> uh, but these stories are all over the place and, and, and again going back to the idea of Herb knowing these, these artists when they were young he met Joshua Redman when he was a kindergartner <laughs> I read that. I just was like floored. It is to just read such an sto- unbelievable, charming, wonderful story about Joshua Redman, and 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 just concisely, Herb was an administrator in the Berkeley Unified School District. Joshua was in kindergarten. Herb got a call about a problem child, uh, and Herb went to visit and went and talked to Joshua Redman in kindergarten. Took Joshua back to his teacher and said to the teacher, this is not a problem child. This is a creative genius. Wait until you see what this child is going to do when he grows up. Stories abound in the book like that. And and they give me thrills and chills just to tell you about them and discuss them with you. They're they're just, they're charming. They're just, they're, they're, they're human stories from artists that you may be listening to. And you get to know the artists this way. 
I, one of the things that strikes me too was that Herb spent so long on K-Jazz as a DJ. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we kind of forget about being a DJ, it's a performance. Mm. I mean, it's a full-on performance. Oh, yes. You're live on the microphone, and if you make any mistakes, a lot of people are going to hear oh, yes. it. There's a lot of jazz in yeah. being a jazz DJ. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that comes out in this book is how much of his life was influenced by the music that was so such an important part of his life. Yes, uh, and, and he he DJ again, and you know, in the in the old days, mm-hmm. you know, somebody was a DJ, a disc jockey. They were actual uh, discs. They were discs, and they were riding those discs as a jockey might. But they had to fill all the time, you know, in in in, in between the tunes, and that's where Herb, of course, was was so uh, knowledgeable. And and just a quick story is his his life. After he had uh, spent uh, uh, his his youth tra- riding the train up to Oakland and, and San Francisco to go to jazz clubs, you know, at a tender age of you know from you know twelve to maybe you know maybe his teens, late teens, K Jazz came on the air in 1959, and it was only days after they came on the air that Herb Wong, twiddling the dial on his radio, found them. And it was only days after they came on the air that they did their first listener contest. And so Herb entered, Herb being, I'm sure, one of the the first listeners, and probably one of the few listeners, entered the contest, won the contest. He was invited to K-Jazz Studios uh, to pick up his prize. His prize was 15 jazz albums. And when he went to the studio, he immediately began negotiating because he had so many of the albums in his collection already. (laughs) And he sat there, and apparently they interviewed him for a few hours. Um, And the next day, K-Jazz had the wisdom to call him up and hire him. And he was on the air for 36 years. Uh, and doing jazz perspectives for 18 years, Christmas show every year. And so he was the perfect person to fit into what you just described, of filling airtime uh, with, you know, his knowledge. As we read this book, there are so many wonderful artists and stories. I mean, Billie Holiday. I mean, here's a man who lived 10 minutes from Stan Getz and mm-hmm. got to meet Billy Holiday. This is astonishing. Uh, he struck me in a way, he's almost like Zelig. He's oh. a, a Zelig of the jazz world. It's funny you should say that because I, I have been using that phrase when I've been <laughs> pitching uh, magazines on possible profile of Herb Wong. Uh-huh. I absolutely uh, honed in on the idea that he is a Zelig of the jazz world. He was behind the scenes. Uh, you know, as a producer, uh, as an educator, as a DJ, uh, he was behind the scenes on so many uh, historic recordings uh, with so many historic and legendary artists. Um, and he was, he was, he was kind of, uh, and, and, and interestingly enough, let's see what happens when this book gets out there, because I called him the reigning force in jazz, and yet I'll bet not many people out there know Herb Wong's name. So he was really hidden behind the scenes, chameleon-like, kind of, you know, uh, Zelig-like, um, uh, doing his job and, and probably not getting a lot of accolades for that. And hopefully that'll change with this, which he considered and I considered her Wong's legacy. That's what this book is. I think the legacy will be, too, that anybody who reads this book is going to be enthusiastic about getting out there, listening to the music, and understanding what a powerful 
kind of music it is. And again, I think there's a whole American aspect to yes. this. Oh, there is. That this is, you know, a self-made man, a self-taught man, a young man uh, who pre-teen mm-hmm. is, finds his way through. Mm-hmm. He's obviously mm-hmm. a genius mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from you know, the earliest, earliest instantiation that we see mm-hmm. him in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's self-made. This is such a wonderful American story. Full, it's rich. It's the, yes. the, the as Peter Sellers once put it, life's rich pageant. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and jazz is, I mean, it's cliche, America's music is, you know, is a term that is often used. It's international. It's inter- it's the world's mm-hmm. music, really. But it, it it's a very small segment of the retail market, for instance, back when people actually bought CDs and bought albums. It was 2%, 3% of the market. It's a, it's a small niche market, but it is so critical, so important in, in terms of uh, America, in terms of history, in terms of what culture is about in this country. Um, and it's got this niche little little corner of the world that once you kind of stick your toe in that, you're going you're gonna to want to dive in. And I'm glad you point out that, uh, and I appreciate your, and thank you for saying that this book might help some people uh, overcome maybe some of the aura of jazz that maybe people think is too difficult. Um, you know, it sometimes has a reputation that it's not easy uh, to to listen to jazz sometimes. I mean, I've been in the Monterey Jazz Festival watching people uh, leave the arena sometimes when, when, when the, the jazz went a little out of their comfort zone. But I think you need to force yourself to, 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 to listen to these things, to, to determine that comfort zone. But I think in terms of what you say, and I thank you so much for saying it, that hopefully this book will open some people's eyes and ears to the idea that this is a fun music to listen to. It's a difficult music to play, and it's a hugely from what all that I could learn that this is this is this and classical music um, uh, are at the top of the rung for difficulty and I th- would think that the improvisation part of jazz probably lists it a little bit above classical in terms of difficulty to 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 learn and to perform mm-hmm. uh, but once you start listening um, and uh, I think uh, hopefully with the aid of of herb Wong's writings and some of his education uh, you'll find it a, a, a real enjoyable pastime I've been speaking with Paul Fingerout, with the late Dr. Herb Wong. He wrote Jazz on My Mind. It will be on your mind after you read his book. Thank you for joining me, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.